Hi, I'm Forrest Coleman. I'm Nick Weiler. And I'm Erica Senior. And welcome to the first episode of Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week's guest is Nick Steinmetz, a six-year graduate student in Quabana Bowens and Tieran Moore's lab here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, Nick. He didn't tell me I had to talk about science. <laughs> I thought we were just drinking. <laughs> we'll start with drinking. We'll start with drinking, and hopefully that'll lead to science. Uh, so we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail, Nick. Could you walk us through how you make it? Sure. So I'm going to be making an old-fashioned cocktail, and I should say that I have literally no qualifications or expertise even in making cocktails. Are you experienced in drinking cocktails? I'm n- not even, really. My, my typical recipe for a cocktail is step one, pour bourbon in glass. Step two, enjoy. <laughs> but well, we're doing something fancier here. So it's going to be an old-fashioned cocktail. It's old-fashioned in a very simple way, which is you mix up sugar with water and bitters, and then you add bourbon and garnish with a cherry and typically lemon peel, although we don't have that ingredient here. So I'm first going to just put a small quantity of sugar, about, I don't know, half a tablespoon in each of these glasses that I have here, and then two dashes of Angostura bitters. Two dashes, is that a highly quantified amount? or? Well, is it, it looks like someone two... with expertise in bartending <laughs> might be able to answer that question for you, Forrest. <laughs> I think this bottle is designed such that if you shake it in a meaningful way, you will get a dash of bitters. <laughs> so I have added the bitters to the sugar, and I'm going to add a little bit of water so that I can dissolve the sugar. Practically you're making a buffer. A buffer solution, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now I'm going to stir until the sugar dissolves, which is generally a sort of obnoxiously long amount of time, actually. I am adding one ice cube to each of these. Uh, the bourbon is the next ingredient. And since we have added so much sugar, we can be, you know, relatively generous with the bourbon because you're not going to taste it Because you're from strongly. Kentucky. and Oh, I mean, see, I would be drinking this straight normally. But the all this sugar and bitters, the, the entire point of it is that the bourbon becomes much smoother and uh, much more drinkable you're not the kind of person who likes bourbon street okay we have it i have assembled two old fashions for eric and i excellent all right excellent. cheers 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 <laughs> okay now that you are empowered with your cocktail uh, are you ready to answer some questions about science nick hit me all right so nick you study attention in monkeys could you explain what attention is sure So attention, as a colloquial term, means, as William James famously said, Uh something that we all just understand. There's some some quote, I I don't have the words exactly right, but there's some quote from William James' famous psychology textbook around the turn of the uh, 20th century in which he he just said, well, attention is, is something everybody understands. And we certainly have this idea that to pay attention to something is to focus on it. And when you focus on something, when you pay attention to something, you are enhancing your perception of that thing and it comes at the expense of your perception of other things in space. And so when we study attention in the lab, we try to design tasks where we can very precisely measure the enhancement of the attended thing and the suppression of things that are unattended. And in our lab, we study in particular visual spatial attention. 
visual because you're attending to one object in the visual scene. Like, for instance, if you're at a baseball game and you can see many, many people in the stands around you, but perhaps you're only paying attention to the guy with the um, cotton candy or something. So what would other kinds of visual attention be that aren't spatial? Well, the other main kind is feature-based attention, which would be, for instance, if you're trying to recognize your friend who has just texted you that they have walked into your section and that they're wearing an orange shirt, and so you're looking for someone with an orange shirt. Mm. And then at that point, your eyes are going to go directly to anything that's orange, which, of course, at a Giants game is going to be just about everything. (laughs) But that's the other main kind of attention that we can sort of distinguish experimentally in the lab. But we study spatial attention. So the monkeys in our tasks are, just as human subjects have been in psychophysical tasks for many decades, trained to attend to one part of the screen that they're looking at versus ignoring another part of the screen. So obviously you could study other sensory modalities like audition attention in the the same way. But are there other forms of attention besides just making the distinction based upon whether you're you're talking about vision or hearing or or whatnot? I mean, I think certainly, like, for instance, in audition, you can attend to a certain location in space where you expect a voice to be coming from or to a particular timbre or pitch of voice that you are trying to pick out of a crowd, for instance. And those, I would say, are probably analogous to the spatial and feature-based attention and vision. I guess I was I'm not thinking, sure if they're different kinds then, though. I was thinking of, you know, your, your friend walks in with an orange shirt into the section, um, but then, you know, somebody to your right, like, there suddenly is a screaming baby, and you kind of can't help but turn and pay attention to them in spite of the fact that you are looking for your friend. Right. So there are some other things that are certainly meant by the word attention um, in sort of everyday use. And the one that you're talking about also has a sort of scientific meaning, which is what we would call bottom-up attention. Bottom-up attention meaning that it's attention that is driven simply by the salient characteristics of the stimulus, in this case, the crying baby. And so your attention will be drawn to that irrespective of whatever you're thinking about, planning about, or trying to focus on. Mm. Whereas the types of attention that I described, visual, spatial, and feature-based attention are top-down forms of attention in that you can choose with your so-called sort of higher brain functions or centers. You can choose to attend to a particular location in space or uh, feature. And then, of course, there's this other colloquial sense that we have of the word attention, which is what maybe a teacher or a military officer would say when they say, like, at attention. And that is sort of a general or heightened state of awareness or alertness. And that, because it's not specific to one stimulus over another stimulus, is not what we're studying. And so that that means something different. Mm. So you can imagine that as the difference between like just being alert and hearing everything your teacher is saying versus being drowsy and maybe not even processing general sensory stimulus. So is this confusion that you have at the colloquial level, is our confusion that we have at the colloquial level about these different forms of attention, does it affect your research in the sense that when you go and you look at the brain and you're looking at some neural signal that you think is related to attention, quote unquote, do you then end up feeling like you have to jump through all these hoops to figure out whether or not you're studying the bottom-up stimulus-driven form of attention or the top-down version or just the general alertness of, of the animal, which is the third kind you mentioned? Yeah, I think that confusion about the word attention is and has been a seriously major problem in the history of this part of neuroscience, to the extent that there there was an article written a couple of years ago that was just called, There is No Such Thing as Attention. That was the title of the article, <laughs> because they were so fed up with this idea that everybody means something different, thanks to William James, presumably, <laughs> when they think of what attention means, that people studying different animals, different types of tasks, different facets of 
brain activity and behavior all want to use the word attention because it feels like something important but on an intuitive level. We know it to be very important to our daily cognitive existence or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's been very hard to match up specific aspects of the behavior with specific neural underpinnings because there are so many different things meant by attention that presumably have different behavioral correlates as well as different neural underpinnings. And people just really have not, in general, been precise enough about what they mean behaviorally by attention and what they mean in terms of linking up the neural correlates that they measure with some aspect of behavior. The modeling that I was doing was trying to understand what kind of processes might underlie selective attention in large-scale networks like visual cortex and frontal cortex in the brain of a monkey or a human. And there are various kinds of mechanisms that you can imagine mediating the effect of frontal cortex activity projecting back to visual cortex activity. And so, for instance... Sorry, this is... So the frontal cortex projecting back to visual cortex is one of the mechanisms that is hypothesized to be involved in. No, it's it's the way in which the frontal cortex impacts and influences the activity in visual cortex that is really the question. We know that frontal cortex does project to visual cortex, and Tieran has shown that stimulating in frontal cortex evokes the same behavioral and physiological effects in visual cortex as selective attention, and so we think that it's really something about that projection that mediates this effect. What we want to know is, how does it influence the neurons there? Which populations of neurons? What kind of receptors? So is this the top-down uh, attention that you talked about earlier? That's right. Yeah, we're talking about top-down attention. The value of understanding the mechanism that underlies selective attention is that we think that attention is obviously an important cognitive faculty and one that goes wrong in a lot of clinical conditions, most prominently in the popular press and in the population in ADHD, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And, you know, these people obviously have difficulties maintaining attention, maintaining focus on something. It's easier for them to be distracted. It's harder for them to suppress information about distracting stimuli. If we understand the specific mechanisms, whether it's NMDA channels, or some sort of other network level effect that underlie this cognitive ability, then we may be able to more precisely design drugs or some sort of intervention that can help these people behave more normally. So if you're sitting in class and you're trying to pay attention to what your teacher's saying, and then you start to daydream and you get into like a very vivid daydream in your head, and a lot of the times you sort of struggle with that and you try to pay attention, but you keep getting sucked back into your mind. Are those two different types of attention or are they same top-down attention that they're competing with each other and for the same neurons even? There's a really interesting idea that I'm really excited about recently that the thing that attention is doing, even spatially selective attention, visual spatial selective attention, the thing that it is doing to the part of visual cortex that is under attention is changing the state of that part of visual cortex from a state that actually looks like a sleep-like state to a state that looks more like an awake state. So in sleep, you have this slow oscillation, so-called slow wave sleep. You have activity going up and down in a very big, dramatic fashion at about one time per second. It goes activity goes up and down across the whole brain. And you actually see that kind of activity in, for instance, the visual cortex during wakefulness sometimes. And it seems that attention shifts activity of part of the visual cortex from this sleep-like activity to the more awake-like activity where activity is not going up and down. It's just sort of constant. It's desynchronized, as, as it's called. And so I would say that maybe the answer to what you're saying is what's really happening is that part of your brain is sort of falling asleep in some sense and going mm -hmm. into, into this more sleep-like state, this other state that it has. Even so daydreaming is, is a not, very appropriate term for it. Is a very appropriate term, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's sort of a hypothesis, and it remains to be seen exactly how similar these up-down states during wakefulness are to the up-down states and this slow oscillation that you have during sleep. 
So when you think back to your naive uh, first year self and when you were thinking about what you were going to study in graduate school, were these kinds of conflicts about the ideas behind attention forefront in your mind? If only they had been. I feel like my, my project would have been better informed and better directed. I think it's difficult actually to get to the root of these things. I mean, the tension literature is very deep and it's taken a long time for me to take a slow and careful enough approach to the literature to really figure out and understand these things and, and really understand what is the best way to, say, design a task to uh, examine some aspect as opposed to other aspects of attention. Hmm. So you, you just thought, you know, attention is the thing. We all know what it is. I want to know how it works. Well, I came in personally very interested in this general idea of studying systems neuroscience, trying to understand how brain activity relates to behavior. And I was very excited about the progress that my professor, Tieran Moore, had made in studying this particular type of function. And so I didn't have any particular pre-existing knowledge about attention or any sophisticated concepts about it. And it was more the fact that the lab was studying it is why I ended up studying it, hmm. I would say. I think that at some level, all of us who are neuroscientists, we all appreciate the fact that science as a way to get knowledge about the world is a valuable endeavor, no matter what application or thing that that knowledge might actually you know, relate to or be about. And so, therefore, studying echolocation in bats is a super interesting thing for any scientist to care about. However, at some level, we're all here because we all have brains and we all want to know how our brains work. We all care at, at some level about, I don't know why I'm saying we all. I care. <laughs> I really care about understanding how human brains work, right? I really do. I've got one. I want to know more about it. And so there's definitely some part of me that I think will always want to know how closely the thing that I'm studying relates to something that's happening in my brain. You study attention, and it's mostly studied in macaques, other old world monkeys. What is it like to work with the monkeys, and do you enjoy that? Yeah, working with the monkeys is, is a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we work with rhesus macaques. They're, like you said, old world monkeys. They weigh about 20 pounds. They're about two feet tall when they sit on their haunches. And the typical macaque existence primarily involves, involves a little bit of hunting for food, involves a little bit of grooming and maybe sexual behavior, and involves mostly social interactions, which are largely, as far as I can tell from the way our monkeys behave and from the things that I've read and videos that I've seen of macaques in the wild, largely dominance-related interactions with each other. It seems to be the case that primates became so successful in terms of fulfilling their basic evolutionary needs that most of their time ended up being able to be spent on these social interactions, and that created these really Facebook. strict dominance hierarchies, Yeah, which <laughs> now play out in the airwaves and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, if there's always someone breathing down their neck, they really need to be able to pay attention, sort of the idea. Yeah. So you can think about what situations might you use spatial attention in real life. And, you know, when I say spatial attention, I described it as paying attention to a particular part of the visual scene. The basic thing you would do is move your eyes towards that. And with your central vision, you would look at the thing that you were paying attention to. But in, in the lab, we actually study this slightly different form where you don't foveate. You don't move your eyes to look at. You don't put your gaze on the thing that you're attending to, but instead you attend it out of sort of the corner of your eye is the colloquial way. So you sort of keep your eyes at one point in space, but have your attention on something at another point in space. And so the way that Tieran put this in one of his nature paper introductions was you could imagine if you're on a train and there's a surly looking gentleman, as he put it, in an adjacent seat that you might want to monitor his activities, his behavior, without looking at him in order to avoid drawing his attention to you. And so that you would do by attending the location and space where he is without moving your eyes to him. Have you asked Tieran about that particular line in his introduction? <laughs> 
Um, no, I don't think so. He had a competition with Michael Graziano about trying to start a paper with the phrase, I love you. <laughs> and uh, Michael Graziano apparently nearly won this competition by starting a paper with some scene. It was, I think, about auditory attention. And then the scene that started the paper was, I love you, he whispered into her ear, um, or something like this. And apparently Charlie Gross, who was the mentor of both of those guys at the time, edited this out of the paper. Uh-huh. So Tragic. As far as I know, the competition is still open. If you'd like to start a paper with the phrase, I love you, you could have Tyrion and, and Michael Graziano's eternal respect, I'm sure. Eternal respect. There were no, no bounty placed upon such an epic feat. <laughs> Sorry. I, no. I don't know what the terms of the agreement were. Yeah. I really like the image of sitting on a train. I mean, this happens to me when I sit on the train, and there are surly gentlemen at Particularly times. in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, when you take the train from San Francisco to Palo Alto. And surly in any number of other, of other adjectives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, so I, I definitely have that experience of, you know, you've got to make sure that no one's going to take your bike. If you're riding on Muni, it's even worse. Right? And it sort of gets this question, I mean, do you think the monkeys and we are doing the same thing? Yeah, so actually, the, I think that's a really great question. And it, I, I would even say the monkeys even are more concerned about this aspect of what I gaze means in social interactions than we are. So for monkeys, looking at a monkey is a social statement, right? If you look at, like, make eye contact with the monkeys that we have in our lab, and, you know, again, this is also things that I've read about that monkeys in the wild do, that's already a threat or a front in some way, and they will react dramatically to just looking at them. If you want to not engage them and not piss them off, you have to consciously avoid looking at them with your eyes. Uh, you can look to the side, you can look just you know, at their body, but away from their eyes. And so to them, it's even more critical that they be able to control their gaze independently of what it is that they are interested in actually getting information about. Whereas I would say, you know, it's probably unlikely that animals such as rats or even owls or some other animals use spatial attention in this sort of important social way. And that doesn't mean that they don't have similar processes in their brain for, say, other purposes or just similar processes that may be studyable to understand the mechanisms that underlie this behavior in our brains. But I think that the macaque visual system is a particularly close model for this reason. So have you looked a macaque in the eye? Oh, yeah. And what happened? So typically our monkeys are in metal cages and the thing that they would do in the wild if they think that you're threatening them, but they think that they're above you in the dominance hierarchy is they would challenge for a fight. And that involves a sort of open mouth, open toothed stare and making loud noises and shaking the tree branches that they're in. So they shake their cage and throw their toys around and just get very agitated about this. So in general, the strategy is to, you know, obviously we don't want to make our monkeys endure this sort of psychological stress all the time. So in general, we don't make eye contact with them and just let them peacefully exist in their cages. Do you feel like you develop relationships with the monkeys at all? Do they have like personalities that you use, like get along with some monkeys and not with other monkeys? If you can't look at them in the eye, it seems like that would be tricky. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other thing is, so they do have personalities for sure. They have different temperaments and some of them are much more quick to sort of fly off the handle and think that you're trying to fight them or something. But the other thing is that, you know, dominance hierarchies, you know, humans have in some ways dominance related interactions. You know, Grad student advisor. Be, exactly. Exactly. You know, someone is going to get their way in that interaction and it's, you know, pretty clear who. <laughs> but for monkeys, it's much, much more strict. You know, there is a number one monkey, a number two monkey, a number three monkey in the colony, in the group of monkeys. And if number 
three is eating some food and number two comes along and wants it, there's no question about what will happen unless there's going to be a fight. And so fighting is the way in the wild these monkeys establish their dominance hierarchies. And since we can obviously never fight the monkeys, <laughs> there's this sort of unresolved question. And so in their minds, obviously. <laughs> um, so we're going to play a game called Not My Field. It's totally original and not derivative at all. That's sarcasm for anyone who didn't catch it. <laughs> yeah, sarcasm. You actually can't see sarcasm on the radio. Um, <laughs> So, Nick, you have a reputation as a very clear and sober thinker, no pun intended. Boo. It was intended. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. What can I say? Okay, so then, and we've been talking about all these really deep questions about attention and, and you know, the neural nature of visual processing. So we're going to ask you about some experiments that have nothing to do with any of that. And so we're going to actually ask you about some of the most ridiculous and outlandish experiments that we could find. My favorite kind. Exactly. So the format of this is I'm going to read you the titles of three articles and you're going to tell me which, the, which of them is the real article. Okay. All right. All right. Let's, let's just get started. So here, question number one. You ready? Yeah, I'm so ready. Okay. Which is the real article? One, cats prefer spending time with people who suffer from allergies to their dander. B, <laughs> pigeons can discriminate good and bad paintings made by children. Or C, wolves can identify dominance relationships between werewolves in the film adaptation of The Twilight Saga. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. Um, I'm ruling out C because I don't exactly know when the Twilight Saga came out on film, but I know that the time course of research in general is about five or six years. <laughs> I'm guessing that that paper might be in the pipeline, but wouldn't be out yet. <laughs> Well-reasoned. <laughs> so cats, allergy, like to spend time with people with allergies, and pigeons can discriminate between good and bad children's paintings. It was specifically children's paintings. Specifically children's paintings. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of detail you can't make up. <laughs> so you're, you're, are you going with B? I'm going with B. Okay, you're going with B. Well, according to the sole author Shigeru Watanabe in Animal Cognition in 2010, these results suggest that the pigeons are capable of learning the concept of a stimulus class that humans name good pictures. So basically, this researcher um, had adults rate the quality of children's drawings and used operant conditioning to train the pigeons to discriminate their artistic quality. Can you just say those poor children? Like, how horrible must you feel that your art is so bad even pigeons know you suck? Like, that's just horrible. You only received two pecks for that scribble. Um, yeah, so the pigeons are able to generalize, and now the pigeons know. Sounds like a good way to get better, though, if you're a kid. Yeah. I mean, I would yeah. get a pet pigeon. I mean... Get a pet pigeon. Like, have them hey, you. what do you think of this one? Hey, what do you think of this one? They're not pecking at it. Okay, question number two. Um, so far, one for one. Okay, Can I drink so, bourbon now? Please. Um, I'm not waiting. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, uh, question number two is, um, researchers have been investigating A, increased eyebrow motion as an indicator of surprise, B, swearing as a response to pain, or C, falling as a reaction to gravity. <laughs> um... <laughs> Researchers have been investigating. Yes, in a in a professional context. Yes, this is a. Paper. I mean, most of, a, most of us a... spend some time investigating swearing in response to pain <laughs> in a sort of like non-professional context. In a recent publication, researchers <laughs> have investigated. I think I've identified this pattern that option C is just too ridiculous. <laughs> You've got me. You're gonna you're gonna sneak one in there. That's option C is the correct answer. I'm gonna miss it. I mean, reason. it could be totally possible to have you know to study, study astronauts falling off things. They don't have gravity. You know what kind of fall, quote unquote falling reflex. That's very creative of you, Forrest. Good defense. <laughs> Let's see. I'm you know I'm I'm actually now that you've brought it up. 
I'm really fascinated about this question of swearing in response to pain. Why do we swear as opposed to producing any other word in the English language? Who are we trying to, you know, who are we trying to lay invective on when we pull out a swear <laughs> word when we when we're hurt? And it makes us feel better too. Are we trying to impress somebody? Yeah. Is, do is, all is cultures it, swear as a result of pain, or is that is, a particularly American? If if, if, if B European. is not the right answer, I'm getting a grant for this. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going with B. I'm going with B. Okay, going with B. Well, Stevens et al. in Neuro Report 2009 investigated whether swearing alters individuals' experience of pain. I was about to be really excited about my new postdoc. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. You can join ben, this lab because yeah. they're doing some really great work. They um, controlled for gender, anxiety, and what they termed pain catastrophizing, which <laughs> I can only imagine what that means. Um, and in general, they found that pain did exhibit a marked analgesic effect in most subjects. Swearing. Affected. Swearing. Exhibited a marked analgesic effect. Mm. So this was exactly Erica's hypothesis. Did it make them feel better? But not those, but not (laughs) males with a catastrophic pain response. The the conclusion um, of the abstract of this paper was that they observed that the hypoalgesic effect may occur because squaring induces a fight-or-flight response and nullifies the link between fear of pain and pain perception. Wow. That's intense. What do you think? This is like some sort of literary criticism interpretation of the... Yeah, it changes your whole perspective on the world. Yeah. So you're doing great. Two questions so far. I I have to interrupt. So there's one thing when I was making the cocktail that I regrettably forgot to discuss or even mention. And what's that? Which was the type of bourbon that went into the cocktail. That's very important. Mm -hmm. It's very important because you can really screw up. I mean, if if we've been using Jim Beam, I don't know if you guys enjoyed the cocktail. You may not have. But if we've been using Jim. It was delicious. Okay. Thank you. If we had been using Jim Beam, this would have been a terrible experience for everyone involved. (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. Okay. You don't have to use a really great bourbon when constructing a cocktail, especially one that has a lot of sugar. And I think I did mention that all the sugar in the cocktail has the effect of softening the bourbon. It would have been fine to use Maker's Mark, which is a t- totally reasonable, decent bourbon um, at a completely reasonable price point. However, what we have here is Basil Hayden's. And now that I'm taking my sip of straight bourbon that I earned as a result of getting the first two questions correct, I am reminded to advertise that Basil Hayden's is an extremely good bourbon and is one that that everyone should try before they die. Final final question here. This is for the second shot of bourbon, I guess? Um, I'm ready. Okay. I'm I'm checking the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So question number three, another paper also dealing with animals. Number one, path traversal in chickens. An eternal question answered. <laughs> Two, apples really do fall far from the tree. And number three, fellatio by fruit bats prolongs copulation time. Wow. Wow, that's, that's, that's spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, did you make B the correct choice three times in a row? I, you know, this fellatio and fruit bats thing, I can't get out of my mind now. What, <laughs> somebody, somebody actually wanted to study so fruit. First of all, fruit bats, do I even think that they engage in oral sex? This is what we're talking about, are this we not? This is what we're talking about, yeah. yeah. Fruit bats engaging in oral sex. I can't picture a fruit bat penis in my mind. <laughs> that is a handicap that you have. <laughs> I can't imagine exactly what motions and positions of a fruit bat would be involved <laughs> in fruit bat issue. 
You know, I decided on the previous questions to rule out option C automatically as being far too ridiculous to be the right answer. I think I'm going to have to uphold that tradition as sad as it may be and rule out the fruit bat fellatio. Okay, so you're what was the first option C. again? The first one, oh, that I keep was forgetting. Apparently, path, path traversal in chickens, an eternal question. Answered. Yeah, you know the magic number is seven plus or minus two. Apparently, mine with bourbon is two <laughs> plus or minus one. <laughs> I've been forgetting option A every time. Path traversal in chickens, right? An eternal question answered. I mean, that sounds like the kind of title that a chicken psychologist would probably write for their research. <laughs> I'm going with option B. We'll go three in a row and B. Three in a row and a B. Apples really do fall far from the tree. Okay, yeah. well, let me read you a quote um, <laughs> from this paper by Min Tan and her colleagues, or his colleagues, Min Tan and colleagues, published in PLOS One in 2009. A positive relationship exists between the length of time that the female licked the male's penis during <laughs> copulation and the duration of copulation. Furthermore, mating pairs spent significantly more time in copulation if the female licked her mate's penis than if fellatio was absent. So it turns out, bats are pretty freaky. Did <laughs> um, the article have photographs? Photographic evidence? Um, video, supplementary video. <laughs> supplementary video to this radio <laughs> podcast. We will, we will There's a button out. actually you have to click. Am I over the age of 18? <laughs> we will just, uh, in a, uh, after this, we'll come, we'll come back into the studio and we will just describe the photos. So you know what's funny? We actually read that paper in one of my classes in, in undergrad. Really? You yeah. had the answer. I had you the answer. You could have earned me this Basil Hayden. I'm sorry. I, and you just I let couldn't. it go. No, Erica, I'm, I'm Erica so now you can have a, a yes. shot. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, apparently they have harems. The fruit bats have large harems, and they just hang out under piles of leaves, performing fellatio on each other. With remarkably human sexual tactics. Harems with... Unbelievable. Well, you know, now that you've got, you know, ten females, and you've got to figure out which one is going to... You know, there's there's a competition going on, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and and, and, and with that, I think that we've reached... uh, A sufficient level of bourbon intoxication to, to end the show. Um, I think we're always going to end with Felicio, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you should make it a theme. <laughs> uh, not in the studio. I mean, just science. <laughs> science. <laughs> Erica, you better watch out with who you get in a booth with. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for, the- <laughs> uh, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for speaking with us today, Nick. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your, your, your drink and the conversation. It was a pleasure. <laughs> And thank you all for listening. Uh, Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Nick Weiler, and myself, with production help from Mike Osborne. And special thanks to the KZSU studio at Stanford, where this program was recorded, and to Josh Talbot, who wrote and recorded our introductory music. For more information about Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.stanford.edu slash group slash west spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E dash west. Brains.